Audio conversation with Jim Maroney recorded Thursday, June 20th, 2013. Jim wrote a book that was published in 2009 titled The Extraterrestrial Answer Book, and the subtitle is UFOs, Alien Abductions, and the Coming ET Presence. Uh, Now, I had heard Jim, he was interviewed by Alejandro Rojas, which I will include a link here on the show notes to that interview. This is going back over a year ago, I think. Um, That interview was the very first time I had heard of Jim. He spoke at great length in that interview about a 1987 event that took place along the Trans-Canadian Highway near Winnipeg. Um, It is a very detailed abduction event. Some of it is remembered consciously. Some of the details are remembered through hypnotic regression. Um, We talk about that event uh, to a great degree in this interview, but not to the same depth that Alejandro covers it in his interview. So uh, for more clarity of his overall experience, you could either read the book or you could go check out that interview. And... um, and I I just didn't want him to retell that story. Sometimes it feels like you can get bogged down in the details of, um, you know, the play-by-play of the actual memories of the contact experience. All of that is very interesting. It's all very important. But I was much more interested in focusing on uh, Jim's direct experience uh, afterwards, how he dealt with it, how he integrated it. Now, now he's a very interesting guy. He has a very logical uh, way of framing things. And that shows up in the book. At the same time, you know, he's seeing things through the, the lens of someone who's had this experience. So, uh, so there's a, almost, I don't want to say a contradiction or a conflict because I, I don't sense that. But there's a, two very interesting stories that emerge. One is very, very dry and analytical. The other is very spiritual and optimistic. Um, and so in that dichotomy is the flavor of the book, which I think is uh, very interesting. And I um, and I can recommend this book highly. Now, I, I wrote down some notes here before doing the interview, and I'm going to read one question that I did not ask. Um, and, and here's the question. In the book, you said, you feel that in your deepest soul, the aliens have the best interests and humanity's best interest at heart. Why did you say that? Um, that was one of the questions I was prepared to ask. I never needed to ask it because that was in essence, the core of our discussion. Now, he did some things in the book, the way he framed things, the way he phrased things. And uh, and he also did it here, and I was glad he did it. Uh, He's got a level of, uh, I would just say, a level of mission and a level of conviction that's very clear. And also, he's very good about saying things that he knows, as well as things he, um, he feels in the deepest part of his heart. At one point, he even corrects himself. He says, you know, like, well, I know something. And then he steps back and he says, well, I feel this in my heart. And and I respect that greatly, that he, he can make that distinction. Uh, and now at the, at the very end of this uh, interview, I will uh, tack on a short excerpt from the audiobook. It won't be Jim's voice. It'll be a narrator reading uh, Jim's written words. And I'm doing this just, just because it'll give you a flavor of the book. This interview runs pretty darn close to two hours. Please enjoy. Hey, Jim, I just want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Thanks very much, Mike. I'm uh, excited to do this interview. Good, good. Now, you published a book. It came out in 2009 called The Extraterrestrial Answer Book, and the subtitle is UFOs, Alien Abductions, and the Coming ET Presence. 
Um, That's correct. Hey, what was the audience for this book? Who were you aiming this book at? Mike, I was really aiming it to a general audience. I wasn't really aiming it to a specific uh, genre in the audience or people with a specific uh, topical interest on the phenomenon, like whether it was separate from UFO abductions to just a UFO phenomenon. I really wanted to really kind of create a a book that was relatively simple and easy to read, uh, something that you like pick up through an airport uh, and uh, and maybe it went with a long flight, uh, you know, be galvanized by the uh, subject itself and and what I had to explain with respect to my belief systems and what I really honestly understand the phenomenon to be. Okay, well now, so at a certain points within the book, um, you address the audience. Now, now this is interesting because what I did is I did not read the book in a paper format. I listened to it uh, in a in an, uh, book on tape format through Audible. I got a, an electronic version of it. Um, and I actually listened to it twice. Uh, I did a, I've been traveling a bunch lately and I did two big drives and I listened to it once. And then uh, a few weeks later, I was coming back from, you know, and, and I listened to it again. So I feel like I'm pretty well versed in, in, the, in what you wrote. But what I found oh, is yeah. that your tone... Uh, even though it was read by someone else, uh, right. y- you would occasionally direct the aud- you would you would direct the questioning, you would direct the content directly to the reader. That would be me or the listener, uh, and you spoke as if basically saying, "Now, if you feel like you've been abducted by aliens, you know this is here's some things you can expect." And then, that's right. And then you know that that actually got to be quite intimate after a while, and. Um, and so I was just, why did you choose that voice? Well, I feel that the abduction phenomenon itself is far more prevalent than we understand it to be. And, and individuals will very likely, I mean, lots of us are going to have um, memories recalled, all of us, but a lot of us are going to have memories recalled that will suggest or indicate that maybe in a stronger way that there was actually an abduction or an encounter experience. And really, then we have to look at how an individual is going to come to terms with these experiences and and how those memories are going to unfold. And that's a really a complex um, situation, something that we're really struggling with. And by I mean we, I'm talking as us as a society, um, us as a educational institutions and, um, you know, they're just trying to put all of that together in a sense that, um, you know, there's a lot of mysteries to this whole uh, unfolding story, but there is absolutely an underlying reality to this. And it's something that we really need to take much more serious. I, I'm somewhat um, concerned, maybe put it that way, maybe even disappointed that we haven't taken uh, significant steps to really legitimize the uh, exploration into the phenomenon, and more concerns about the marginalization of individuals who have come forward to recount their experiences. And by marginalization, I mean you know um, uh, other people either making fun of individuals or treating them like kooks or all those other types of things that go along with it. When when ultimately you know we find individuals that are really at the very forefront of these experiences that could really shed light as to how these experiences uh, unfold, I guess, or, or, or how they take place and, and how to best incorporate these experiences in a productive way into individual lives. 
Okay, so you said you know folks are getting marginalized. Now you have come yeah. forward. What is your first person experience as far as either feeling marginalized or or not? You know, I never really um, push my ideas too extensively on individuals. Um, I've come to understand that the phenomenon itself, and I'm talking about the abduction phenomenon, is a very real phenomenon. And the enormity of what this really means to us as a society and to individuals is, is almost incomprehensible. For me, as just you know, Jim Maroney, as just a, a regular guy, I found the experiences very difficult to incorporate in my life in a healthy way. I mean, it really, they really did throw me out of balance. And it took me a long time to you know, bring these experiences, like I would say, into balance in my life and to accept them. And um, yet I, I worry that other people, I mean, I, I know it, how it affected me, and maybe this is just me, you know, my ego speaking, but um, I thought I could handle anything at the time. You know, I, I was, you know, I, I'll put this way, I was all full of piss and vinegar. You know, I'm, I'm young, I'm 28 years of age, you know, I can, I can take on the world. And, this, and so uh, you're young and 28 years of age, that's the initial event that took place yeah. in, in the um, uh, roadside uh, uh, rest stop, correct? Yes, that's right. And, and it just totally turned my world upside down, totally turned it upside down. And um, I really started thinking when I was going to write the book, this is not about me. This is about all of us. I, I don't I, just, you know, Jim Maroney on his own is going to be able to uncover all the mysteries of this phenomenon. It, this is something that's unfolding in humanity. And um, if we can pull our resources together um, and work together in a constructive way, we could certainly come to understand the phenomenon and hopefully understand these beings that are interacting with us in a much better way, and then come up with systems and processes in place that can help individuals go through these experiences and possibly more, maybe inevitably, build a much better relationship with these beings than the one that we currently have. Okay. Now, so so it's so it's interesting. So you're saying now, I just the, the question was, did you feel marginalized? And it sounds like no. you haven't had the experience of feeling marginalized. I haven't, you know, I, I, I wasn't looking for acceptance. Um, and maybe that's the reason why I didn't feel intensely marginalized. You know, I wasn't looking for acceptance from anybody. Um, you know, I was, you know, my, my family would always love me. And um, I had uh, relationships at the time that I didn't use this as a, you know, to define who I am. Um, and uh, you know, I've always claimed to say, listen, I'll just tell you a story. And, um, you know, it's, it's a story that I've come to understand has an ultimate reality to it and how it can impact us. But it's still, you know, I understand the limitations to what I'm saying um, because from a scientific perspective, the proofs that I have for my story are rel- you know, relatively limited. Um, but the proofs that exist in a larger scale of what's going on are quite definitive. They define that this, this is actually happening that there are encounter experiences going on. We just don't understand exactly, I'd say, you know, as a society, understand exactly how they're going on, why they're going on. And and that has created different versions on that. So from the marginalization standpoint and me feeling marginalized entirely, I wasn't I wasn't not really, but I still understood that I suddenly understood something that a lot of people don't. Um, you know, I, it, it's not a belief system or a belief structure like a religion or anything else. This is simple knowledge that has a huge impact because it, it's, it's changed you fundamentally and it's changed your understanding of the universe and your world fundamentally. 
and to that extent, um, you know, I, I guess I, I could see a little, feel a little bit different. But I, I also, it's humbling. You know, it's it's almost hard to explain. It's it's humbling because I realized that there was a great deal of time in my life when I probably would not have believed a lot of this stuff anyhow. Somebody would have come to me and said, "Hey, I got a story to tell you." I don't think I would have believed them. And for that extent, I have a lot of empathy for those people who are skeptics about the phenomenon. And I also believe that we do, you know, we do need to remain somewhat skeptical over some of the claims that are occurring or are being made about the phenomenon, both on the good and then on the bad side. So I just think we need to keep open-minded about it. Good, good. And, and so I've come forward with my own set of experiences. I've had very little uh, repercussions. Um, yeah. And so I think that the marginalization, you know, it may be taking place, you know, from, let's say, you know, uh, uh, network news on down, where network news at the top, you know, the, the, the media system that's in place will laugh at this unless it's a late night cable television documentary and then it'll be treated right. sort of tabloid like but um but it but it won't be treated in the headlines uh if it is it is kind of it's got the giggle factor all sort of you know uh, tied in <laughs> into it now but i think in that in Absolutely. that and i and i definitely sense that changing um, you know, changing yeah. in the last, uh, you know, I don't know whether it would be, you know, 20 years ago, it was certainly, you know, would have been a different response collectively uh, that, that someone yeah. coming forward would have had. And then and now 10 years, it would have been even, oh, you know, less caustic. And now it seems like, you know, I've come forward with very minimal uh, repercussions. And, um, and that to me says a lot. Uh, and so my sense is it's, you know, the, the, the change, the, the disclosure aspect won't be happening from the top down. You know, I, I don't expect like a father figure like the president of the United States to sort of, you know, <laughs> come forward and then say something nice that will pacify everyone. Um, I, I simply don't see that happening. What I do see happening is just from the from the grassroots up, uh, it changing slowly, consistently, uh, you know, might be slower than some people want, but the change is taking place. And then at one point, um, it'll just be self-evident. Um, and then there won't, won't need to be any, uh, you know, no, the president won't need to stand in front of a podium and declare everything because, uh, I, th- I feel like it, it will be just understood by the, by the collective populace. If the same trend continues, I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. I have to agree with you, Mike. I think your, um, hypothesis on that and your ideas about how that's going to, transform itself, I have to say, is certainly supported by the current, you know, evidence. When you start looking at what's happening around the world, particularly in the United States, um, you know, there's been a lot of grassroots efforts to try and bring light to this and and, uh, and certainly some understanding. I think it's kind of hijacked in some ways by some tabloid news uh, areas and haven't really been treating the phenomenon in a serious way that it should be. But in fairness to some of those reports, too, sometimes... I, I do understand how they get into these situations. I'm not making excuses for them. I actually, maybe I am, <laughs> you know. But sometimes when they're under tight timelines or deadlines, you know, they put programs together and they just go, hey, you know what, uh, go out and interview some people and get their ideas and then do this with really doing the, the detailed research that, that should really go into some of these things. But, um, you know, obviously what we're seeing right now is more or less a, a grassroots response to... Um, you know, uh, 
understanding more about the phenomenon. But what I think is always a good way of, of gauging it or measuring it is when you go to TV and you have TV, TV programs like on History Channel and that uh, talking about the UFO phenomenon because they know, obviously, they're not going to put it on TV if they're not going to get ratings. So there's a lot of interest in this particular area. Now, whether or not what they're putting on TV is accurate or whatever, that's secondary really to the fact that there's a lot of interest in this phenomenon. I think we have to acknowledge that there's so much we don't know about the phenomenon that we need to be able to reassess our positions or reassess how we understand phenomenon, predict how it's going to change. And if it doesn't change the way we think it's going to change, acknowledge that and just you know, uh, reinstitute or reevaluate a new hypothesis and say, like, okay, if this didn't happen, if this seems to be happening, maybe we can make a better prediction about how this is going to unfold. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Now here, now, so my very first question was, you know, who is your intended audience? And I guess I was setting you up um, because as I drove and as I listened to your words, um, I felt as if, you know, it was directed at me and, and me being someone who uh, has, has in the last six years or so struggled a lot trying to come to terms with what this might mean, uh, these experiences right. might mean in my life. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, quite honestly, it's only been quite within the last, literally the last few months where I can honestly declare that I have interacted with something very profound. And then it has, I hate the term abduction. I just hate alien abduction as a term, yeah. but, um, you know, that is the only, uh, vocabulary word that seems to match. I wish there was another one, but that's certainly what I have, I have, uh, what has intersected with my life. So anyway, what I was guess what I'm You're saying right. is, is your book was directed at me, and I, I listened to it as if you were talking directly at me. And then it was funny because sometimes you were talking directly to me because you would say things <laughs> like, if you think you've been abducted by aliens, you know. And then I was yeah. like, well, I do think that. So um, You're right, Mike. I, I think that if, if people, if anyone who's struggling with the abduction experience itself would get a lot more value out of the book than anybody who hasn't had any experience at all with the phenomenon. I think the, the book really is intended to help people at least in a little way, in a small way, try to incorporate their experiences, knowing that someone can do it, knowing that there are people out there in the world. You, you shouldn't feel alone. Uh, there are many, many people out in the world who are going through these experiences and, and are struggling with these experiences. But these experiences can be extraordinarily enriching, even though they can be also extraordinarily difficult. And And I... And it's now there was a um, a study done recently where they uh, took uh, individuals and they had them read something that was absurd. They had them read. I think it was they they had them sit down and read a, a Kafka short story. And they tested. They gave them in, in, uh, intelligence tests before reading the 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 short story, and then they gave them intelligence tests afterwards, a similar test. And what they found is that the that having to grapple with something that is absurd actually increased their scores on a simple intelligence test. So the implication is that that being confronted with something completely unknowable, absurd, something that doesn't make sense, will somehow challenge you and and make you smarter. Um, and and I feel like you know, I don't know if this is the, the you, so you step back a couple of steps from that. And, and I feel like you and I, and lots and lots of other people have been confronted with something that is on some level absurd, on some level, unknowable, on some level, you know, challenging 
uh, in a way that, that few things in, in our existence can be. And then we are forced to sort of reorganize our definition of reality in a way. And I, and I feel yeah, there's a real benefit to that. Absolutely. It's a, it's a really, I define it in the book as a, a challenging of our consensus reality, you know, or, and, and, what that means is it's a nice fancy term to basically say that, you know, all of us have a general idea of what our reality is. We have a consensus over that. Uh, when we find ourselves being challenged by something that doesn't fit within that consensus reality, then we feel that we now have to redefine ourselves and our reality. And that is a long process. You know, that's, you know, you just don't do that on a weekend and come back and say, well, you know what? I redefined myself and my reality. That just doesn't happen. So, you know, to struggle with it with years um, is, you know, you'll have your ups and downs, but it's certainly achievable. It's certainly something that what, what I get excited about, Mike, is, is the idea that we, we are capable, like humanity is capable of forging this new relationship with these beings. I don't like the idea that, you know, anybody who talks about the idea that, hey, I think we can have a better relationship with these beings. I think we can you know, that we could learn a great deal from them are perceived as being naive uh, in many circles, I guess, in the UFO community. I've, I've come across that where they say, well, boy, you know, if you think they're just uh, benevolent and, and that, that you're wrong, they're benevolent, they're the bad guys, they're, you know, what gives them the right to do this and all this other kind of stuff. But really fully understanding um, the entire process of what, what's underlying it. And to defend that position even a little bit further, Mike, is that, you know, when I talk to a, a, a gentleman, when you look at the, the evidence itself, and you try and find out the very, very best evidence that you have in the phenomenon, you know, you, you look at the work that Johnny e. Mack has done, and and much of it's gone ignored, you know. They just say, like, well, no, you know, what Johnny e. Mack has said, uh, uh, this being a uh, uh, having the ability to transform individuals or to transcend individuals, and their understanding of reality, uh, and how that has been a really good thing for so many people that he'd spoken to, was just completely dismissed sometimes in popular culture. Um, you know, the popular view right now in the world seems to be on the UFO front is that the aliens are bad and evil. I mean, that's that's what I continue to see at least from my end on on TV and on written articles. And when I looked at a gentleman like Travis uh, Walton, I had the pleasure of meeting Travis once, and you know, and and yet. When you see, if you ever saw the movie Fire in the Sky and it looked so terrible and everything else, you know when you talk to Travis as a person, you say, Travis, you know, like, uh, what do you think these beings are? And he goes, you know what, Jim, I, I, he said, I, I don't. He said, I, I think I was just in the wrong time at the wrong place, and 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 something happened that they they did to fix. He said, I, it was something that was unexpected, but they were really here actually trying to help me. You know, he never came across and said they're the, they're the horrible, horrible, terrible, evil beings. He actually said, I think they're really here trying to help us. Now, that's a remarkable comment from somebody like Travis Walton. And that, and yet a lot of that just gets missed, you know, in our, again, because it doesn't fit within the uh, confines of, a, again, popular belief uh, on the UFO phenomenon anyway. So it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, and then the, the movie Fire in the Sky is, 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 follows the story rather closely as far as the investigation and the, the stuff that the police did and the, the events surrounding the actual event of the, the abduction experience where it does, where it doesn't match at all is, is what happened on board the ship. 
um, his, his, you know, the, with it, what he tells is these, you know, rather polite and, and non-threatening beings. He, he does say he was terrified, but you know, the, right. the, the beings didn't certainly didn't do anything to terrify him. Um, so, so yeah, there's that, that Hollywood, that Hollywoodization of, of what, um, you know, what, what got presented to the, to the American public or the, you know, the world public. Yeah. Um, and then the, the real story I find is actually much, much more intriguing and much more interesting. It is. That's the way I find it as well, too, you know, and I, and I think for many of us who've had experiences with these beings, uh, wherever they come from, um, you know, understand intuitively the importance of these experiences and, and something extraordinary that's taking place. I'm excited by the fact that human beings even have the potential to do this. You know, it's not so much of sitting back and saying, oh, who are these beings? Oh, they're so great. I think there's a part of this that, that I sit back and look and go, my God, you know, as individuals, as human beings, we have the potential to reach out in some small way um, to these beings as they are reaching, obviously, to us. You know, uh, we haven't done a very good job of reaching to them, but we do have that potential uh, that exists within all of us to try and understand these beings, try to develop that relationship. But I, I really feel the reason why part of that relationship seems to be so distant at this point in time is because ultimately, you know, if you look at, these beings are not of huge ego. Maybe they don't have any ego whatsoever. But their understanding of our perils in our world really focus around our relationship with ourselves internally and our relationship with each other. And that's why they're here. So really the defining moment for them is that you know, they, they want us to have a better relationship with each other, ultimately. So you know, the, the idea of having a relationship with them, I think, is going to come over time. But it's not the absolute most pressing matter from their point of view. But it's a, an important component to it. Um, you know, I mean, that's why we're really remembering them at all. If these beings, since these beings, I should say, have the ability to completely block your memory, of any kind of encounter. The question about why we remember anything at all is really a question that that has to be asked. And then your answer is, well, because they want us to remember. Exactly. If they want yeah. us to remember, you know, if they want us to remember, it's because there is a long-term relationship that we're going to have with them, something in our future. It's going to be important for us to know that they exist. It's going to be important that we understand a little bit about what they're trying to do. And um, that seems evident to me. I mean, none of this is by accident. And uh, that's what's so fascinating um, about this whole subject. Now, in, I, I, you had that event in, you said 1983? Uh, 87. 87, excuse me. Um, one time, I'm going to write that down. And then um, now you retold that event very clearly in the book, as well as a, a few other um, online audio podcasts. And one of them, I just think of the one that comes to mind initially, and that's actually where I first heard of you, was through um, Alejandro Rojas did one on Open Minds uh, Radio. And um, right. what I plan on doing is just making that, linking that to this to this uh, interview here so that um, folks can get, because that one was a very, what I thought was a very thorough uh, retelling of that what, 1987 experience. Now, what, what I, when I, after listening to that, I, I kind of sensed that, you know, like, oh, well, he just had that one experience. It happened in 1987. And then upon reading the book, um, that's not 
that's not true at all. It seems you've had a, you've had uh, oh, I guess what I would say a lot of experiences. Yeah, I've had, yeah, I've had a few of them for sure that I'm allowed to remember. <laughs> so you always have to put that caveat. It's almost like speaking a different language, you know, when you start getting into this dominant. But yeah, there are a number of experiences I've had since that particular one in 1987. I called the 1987 experience really the initiating event. And that was the one that defined for me without question that the phenomenon was real. And, and um, you know, that, uh, again, I was kind of surprised, but maybe kind of not surprised at the fact that I would have more experiences with these beings. Um, it turns out at that 1987, I became aware of the fact that I'd had previous contact with these beings that I had no previous memory about at all, zero. You know, uh, it's just how could that be? I thought to myself, how could I be? How could that be? I wouldn't remember an experience like this with these beings. How could that be? Um, and these are one of the things I struggled with, and it became evident that you know, well, it, it is what it is. You know, they have the ability to do that, um, and really for a society that forces itself or, or, or ushers in this idea that knowledge is everything, that we search for knowledge, it became almost counterintuitive that it would be a good thing that I don't remember these things. And um, But now I be, I've come to understand that you know the reason why I wasn't remembering much of my contact with these beings was because it would have been too debilitating for me to remember the experiences. I, you know What they're doing is trying to protect us from the experience itself, because ultimately, I don't think we'd be able to function very well. Uh, you know, if you return from such an experience, I think the tra- trauma associated with being removed from your home into an alien environment, uh, dealing with things that shouldn't exist, um, you know, dealing under very extreme circumstances would not be a good thing if you re- were able to remember it. Uh, the fact that you can't allows you to basically come back and, and work and, and function as a as a human being, you know, as a as a productive person in our society, and as a from an individual standpoint, certainly limits to a great extent the, the trauma that's associated with it. But that doesn't change the fact that that ultimately you still are going to need to know that they exist and that they are involved with your life. Um, so I think that most abduction experiences, other than maybe Travis Walton's experience, which is an exceptional experience, the vast majority of abduction experiences are are over the long term, uh, you know, people will have encounters with them for the rest of their lives, uh, ultimately. That's interesting. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and that, that the Travis Walton thing isn't is an oddity in the sense that you know, as far yeah. as we know, he's only had one experience. And and I have seen him speak. And uh, one of the things that you know, that the question and answer at the end, someone says, you know, Travis, um, have you had any other experiences? And he puts his goes up to the microphone and he says, if I have had any other experiences, I would not talk about them. Um, basically implying that he got into such hot water or just was thrust into the limelight in a way that was, you know, um, I, I, it's hard to know which is more traumatic, the event or, uh, you know, the, the, the public circus that surrounded him. Um, yeah. So so the event in 1987 took place uh, on a Canadian highway. Um, now, just knowing that um, I'm going to, post a, a spot for for listeners to uh, follow up and, and um, hear that story in completion. Could you just give a little synopsis of that? And I, I know that's really unfair to say. Um, you could, you're allowed to swear on this show. Let me put it that way. So, uh, <laughs> okay. so there's, there's, a, well, there's one quote in particular I want to get to, and it has to do with the doors and, um, or the door. Um, oh, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's right. Right. Uh, that, that other 
um, interview is in place. So I don't feel I feel like it's a little unfair for you to retell the story in its entirety. But I do think that sure. that one little section is is uh, you know I thought that was amazing. So. Okay, well, if, if I get to that one section, I'm not entirely sure. Is it the section where I was on board the ship? Or yeah, and they say, uh, and you said, um, you know, you could have used the okay. fucking door. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you don't have to swear if you don't want to. So. <laughs> no, it'll be fine. Uh, I always watch my language of what I'm going to be in the public sector as well, you know, speaking to the public in general terms. But I think that in this particular situation, it is appropriate for me to kind of expand upon exactly what was happening in that reality and not defer from saying what was said. You know, I, I'm just going to say the way, how it actually happened. So I was, I parked my vehicle in a parking lot and it was part of a um, truck stop essentially. And I put myself, I felt uneasy actually from the moment I pulled into this parking spot. I, I would, the whole time I, I felt uneasy. I mean, I had various places I could park the vehicle. I could park into an area that had uh, a lot more, you know, a lot less lighting, a lot darker, and a lot less traffic. But I didn't feel very at ease at all. And I wanted to park in an area where I could see people and people could see me. Um, you know, again, um, I don't get intimidated and I don't get scared very easily. At least I didn't back then. But something just had this incredible uneasiness about what I was doing that evening. And this was already about 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd driven about 11 straight hours. So I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just roll back the seat here. I'll get myself comfortable. I put myself into the passenger seat. And I thought, well, I'll just close my eyes for a little bit. Um, you know, it, it's, in this, it's in August, so even finding a hotel and, and that kind of stuff was going to be very, very difficult. Most of the hotels were already full because it, it's the main highway that uh, traverses Canada from the east to the west coast. And so during the during summer, these you know, hotels fill up pretty quickly. So here I am in uh, in this car when um, I thought a transport truck was actually pulling in, but because uh, the lights actually came into the car, and I'm thinking, what in this? Like, what is this asshole doing? I thought to myself, this transport truck is pulling up with these damn lights. Right? I mean, this guy's going to hit my car. I'm thinking to myself. And then the lights started moving over top of the car. Now, the whole time I had my eyes closed. And you're not going to open up your eyes if somebody is shining a you know a thousand watt light in your in your eyes when your eyes are closed. You don't even want to open your eyes. You kind of you squint your eyes even more to, to just try and block out the light. And but I was lying on my back, and then I re- and I had a small little sunroof on my little car. And the sunroof was closed, but. Uh, you know, you could I could see the lights moving over top of the vehicle because the lights were actually coming down now through the vehicle itself. And instantaneously, at the same time of this realization, I became paralyzed. And this, the paralysis was absolutely extraordinary. Um, I could barely move, could barely move. I was wondering, it almost felt like it was suffocating. And at the same time, I could feel a, a tight band of energy I, the only way I could describe it, like a tight band. There wasn't actually a physical band, but it seemed like there was pressure, I would call it that, that way. Um, uh, a non-tactile pressure, just a pressure in my head, like the way you would get a headache pressure or something like this. It would start to occur in my, in my head, and I could feel like almost like there was squeezing there. And as that was happening, I could feel myself start drifting back into more of a, a meditative state, because at the time I was, and I still do a little bit of meditation, 
And it was just a very kind of meditative state. It seems completely, I'm just saying the way this is the way it happened. And I was struggling not to get into that meditative state. I, I, I wanted to be conscious about what was happening around me and what was going on. And uh, something came into the car, and I had the, all the windows rolled up to defend myself off from the mosquitoes. And uh, something came through the car and, and touched my right arm. I, I felt that it must have passed through solid material of the car in some way. It felt like an electric probe of some sort. and It was just a very gentle brushing against my right arm. I felt that I needed to do something, and I didn't know what to do. I was I was scared, but I wanted in some way, shape, or form to show them that I, I knew there was obviously a ship above my vehicle at this point in time. Um, there was no sound to it. It was absolutely dead air would be the way I would describe it. And I could feel the hairs of my arm also rise. Uh, so I was obviously in some very strong electromagnetic field. I, I reached with my right hand. I, I tried to open the door and all I could or unlock it and it wasn't to get out and run it was basically to kind of show them in some way that that I was trying to communicate I wasn't trying to threaten them in any way and if they you know it was just anyway that was my rationale my reasoning for it then suddenly um, I was taken you know I could feel myself moving upwards and um, the next thing I realized is uh, you know it felt like my body was torn apart. It felt very, I felt like I was, I was being shredded. It'd be the best way I could describe it. Um, and then the next thing I know, I'm standing beside my car with my left hand kind of staggering a little bit. And I'm, I'm kind of staggering a little bit because it's just like, it's like waking up, I guess, from a walking, you know, I, I'm waking, I wake up and I find myself with my left hand, I shouldn't say wake up because I never really did fall asleep through all of this, but it's, it's Felt like I was. I just opened my eyes, and all of a sudden, there's this. You know, I, I'm in this room, and I'm staggering a little bit, and I put my hand against the car. But the, the pain that I felt, and for that short duration, it was only a few seconds, but it was very painful. And I was mad, and I was scared. First of all, I'm now looking at beings that are completely alien. They're not human beings at all. And I'm in a, some kind of a, a ship, that's all my assumption is, because with my vehicle. And um, I'm looking across this uh, room that looks like an amphitheater kind of room, and there are a couple of beings in front of me, completely, they're just in uniforms, they have large heads, large eyes. Uh, there are there are, Their pupils were all blue. I didn't see anybody with black eyes or anyone who just cool black eyes or anything this. They actually had blue pupils to them. And um, in my fear and I, I and, and in the desire of some way to protect myself, I started screaming and yelling at them. And uh, one of the things I recall saying was that, you know, you could have used the fucking door. Like, you know, you didn't have to take me through that. Like, what are you doing? You know, you don't have a right to do that to somebody. You know, you don't have a right to do this. Who gives you the right? You know, and I became more and more <laughs> indignant about what they had done and 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 those types of things. And that's just part of that experience. But really, how the whole experience it turns out that from the time I arrived to the ship to the time I left, I believe that the entire experience was carefully orchestrated on their part to figure out who Jim Maroney is. You know, and under how does Jim act in certain situations? Because in the end. And I, I mean, in the end, they expressed some 
deep feelings of love and concern that I knew were absolutely genuine. So even though the original part of the experiences was painful and was difficult, there was such a great feeling of love, compassion, um, intimacy, I would describe it as that as well, and, and a general feeling, maybe sadness too in some way, um, that, you know, a sadness to the, to the situation that we both found ourselves in, sadness to the situation that humanity is in, not just, you know, how Jim Maroney is in, because I'm, I'm part of humanity, but a, a sadness to all of those things. It was that, uh, uh, but then also a hope, and it, it's just an incredibly complex feeling um, that I was left with. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the experiences that I had on, on board the vessel itself were very difficult. Um, but in the end, um, you know, it was a remarkable experience. One of the things I do remember is seeing other people on board the vessel. And, um, you know, they, they, they were unconscious. They, were, uh, they weren't able to speak to me, but and they were dressed differently. They were all lying in tables. And I, I realized that what was ever happening and back in 1987 was absolutely mind-blowing to me. It's, it's like they're obviously having a great deal of interaction with human beings, and we have no idea about what's going on. None. We, didn't, we don't know what's going on. And to me, that itself lent to me incredible um, insights, uh, frightening in some ways, obviously, to me, but also just how much I don't know and how much we as a, as a civilization don't know about what's actually going on. Um, but um, uh, ultimately, the very bottom line is, you know, I don't consider them to be evil in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I do consider them to be having humanity's best interests at heart, absolutely. Yet, the circumstances in which they have to interact with us are extraordinarily difficult for them, as it is for us. Uh, I, I think that we are too self-absorbed. We tend to think of ourselves all the time. We don't really try to extend ourselves in many ways to the feelings that these beings might be having, to the struggles that they might be having. Um, I mean, if it's difficult for us, who's to say it's not difficult for them? Of course it's difficult for them. Um, and, you know, I don't think we've made it any easier for them. I, I think that who we are and, and, the, and the circumstances in which this, I'll call it an intervention in the human evolutionary development is taking place is an extraordinarily difficult one. I think, and I know what we need, individuals that will have the strength, the compassion, the insight, and the courage to help all of us move forward in a way that we don't fully understand at this point. Now, now, in that story, when you were on the ship, this is something interesting. This, is, this was an amazing quote, I thought. Um, you said, you know, like, you know, why didn't you use the, well, you could have used the door. Um, and then their response was, and I'm quoting from the, from the book, um, yeah. you know, they calmly said, you know, what do we need doors for? Yeah, and with would, one being. One being stepped forward out of the out of the group and just asked me the question, you know, what what do you need doors for? And and, and in a well, way, you know, that that struck me as like the the gulf between the two. I mean, like how what could you agree on if you can't even agree on what a door is? You know, used for. I know. I was stunned. The the entire as as unbelievable as the experience is. That question that came back was something I totally. Who could anticipate a question like that? as a response to my question. Now, it's just unbelievable. 
didn't even know how to, I, it just stopped me. I was stunned. I, I thought, to my, how am I going to communicate? How am I going to have anything in common with these beings? How am I even going to start a conversation with if I can't even discuss what, 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 <laughs> what doors are needed for? That gives you an idea of the gulf, I, I thought to myself. You know, I, I was stunned by that. I, I, I'm still awed by that particular response even to this day. Now, one sense is, I mean, it seems like uh, they're, you know, from my research and my direct experience is that their things can be presented very theatrically um, for a purpose, yeah. you know, almost like, almost as if they're, um, instead of telling you directly what they want, they give you a little mythological story almost. But, um, yes. you know, could that entire event have been staged specifically for that Q&A, um, knowing full well? I don't know if that's true or not, but... Um, just so you would have that, because um, that to me was one of the more profound little moments of the book when 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 you realized that you that you couldn't agree on yeah. a door, what a door was for. I I don't think that was staged. I the honesty in which that particular question came back to me, and the way the being presented it, it didn't seem to me staged at all. Okay, it okay. wasn't yeah. the sense of it. Now now was this spoken telepathically or was it verbal, like the lips verbal. moving and you were hearing it through your ears? Yep, verbal. Lips moving and can hear it through my ears and there was no accent. Oh, that's no interesting. Western accent or anything or, you know, and and I was, you know, I, I should have been just as, it was the first words that I ever heard from them. First words I ever heard. And the, the actual was quote would have, been, question. would have been, what do we need doors for? What do you need doors for? Okay. Interesting. Okay, that was, so that was, now, so there are, now I'm just going to play, you know, whatever this is of where, you know, the, everything we're dealing with at this point now is, is, uh, how to say it, you know, there's a continuum and, and, you know, some stuff is believable and some stuff is just, I don't want to say unbelievable, but beyond belief. <laughs> and, and I reckon. It's almost all beyond belief. Yeah, but. yeah. And I, and I, my own experiences are the same thing. So, so I, 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 you know, but at the same time, now there are some beautiful researchers and like, I could name a few that if you had said you interacted with these beings and they spoke and their lips moved and you heard it through their ears, they would take your account, crumple it up in a ball and throw it in the wastebasket. Um, mm -hmm. um, I'm not interested in doing that, but I just think that, have you ever had the telepathic communication? Uh, yes, I have. I have. Absolutely. But on board that vessel, from all the memories I recall through my experience, it was all verbal. And now, in, in that experience, that initial experience, now, now correct me if I'm wrong here, there was a taller female being that interacted with you. Yeah, she was about the height of, uh, you know, of a regular person, basically, you know, an average female. Now, did you, did you have the sense that you had met her before? Or was that she had not, communicated with you before? Not when I first saw her, but um, as, as our interaction continued... And towards the end, it became pretty evident to me. I remember the last feelings I had that, that there were, you know, when I first saw her, I just thought she was just a, a taller being, right? There's just another alien being and that there was no um, feeling there or anything else. Um, and that, I think, was actually very carefully staged by her. And um, after the interaction that we had, which involved the question, and the question was, and this is how the interaction this was the very first words I heard from her were, um, um, we don't understand your anger, was the question. And that would be, that would be uh, about the event with the door? I mean, no, the actually, 
this was actually a question after after been on the ship for a couple, well, maybe half an hour to 45 minutes or somewhere in that neighborhood. And I was just actually regaining consciousness. I was on a bed um, in some, I'll call it an operating theater or a recuperation theater or something like that. And there was a number of beings around me, and there was two beings at the edge of my bed, and that were very, very tall. They were, you know, like they were extraordinarily tall, and they were dressed in some black outfits. Um, and this other uh, female being kind of pushed her way in, I'll call it to the, on my right hand side. She pushed her way in past smaller beings that were there. They were dressed in kind of like these white, white lab coats might be the best way to describe it. Um, white uniforms of some sort, and, and she had a kind of more of a beige outfit on, and um, and yet there wasn't any physical attributes that would define her as a female. You know, there were there was no breasts or anything else. She looked almost identical to anything else. There's just this aura or this sense that she was female. That's all I I could say. Um, and her question that she posed to me as I was just trying to realize again, as I, I was coming back to consciousness and I was aboard the ship, was uh, the question was, don't understand your anger. Well, at the time, I, I wasn't angry. I was, I was just, you know, I, I, I was coming back to consciousness again. I had lost consciousness for a period of time, and this was after there had been some a number of medical procedures that were very painful. So, I started struggling. I said, "Well, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not angry right now. What's she talking about?" And then she just was insistent. She came back and she says, "We don't understand your anger," and I'm like, "What?" And Again, I think it was the third question. We don't understand your anger. And then I, I remember t turning my head away from her saying, what is, oh, when I got on board the ship, right, when I was yelling at everybody, when I was angry and everything else, uh, right. And I just wanted to say, look, I'm sorry. I just wasn't expecting it to hurt is really what I wanted to say. And all I got out was, I'm sorry. And and then this, I'll call it this huge watermelon, you know, came up in my throat and I, I could feel the emotions coming up and I, and I was going to cry and I didn't want to cry. You know, I didn't want to cry in front of these beings. You know, I didn't, I wanted to show some strength. I, 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 didn't, I thought, quite frankly, I just didn't want to cry in front of them. And, but I couldn't, I, I just couldn't hold it back. And all of a sudden, all these emotions um, and, and all the fear and all the pain that I'd felt previously just came out and it was because this being had now changed from this very um, impartial, very uh, just a, a very impartial, unfeeling being to some incredible emotions of compassion and love. And I could feel it emanating from her. And I, I hugged her, and, and you know, I could move from the bed. I got up a little bit. I hugged. She bent down to hug me, and. And I cried like a baby. I hadn't cried like that ever. ever. I can't. I don't think I've ever cried that hard in my entire life. And uh, I remember her whispering the words to me that it was okay to cry, that the strong ones cry. That's what she said to me. And um, it was a moving experience, really. And then right after that, I don't recall much more after that particular what she said. I mean, I, I recall a little bit about. Um, us, uh, like me getting changed. And it's only little bits of memory here and there. I don't have the entire picture. I, I remember being back in the uh, in the original amphitheater room where the, my vehicle was, which was still there. I remember saying goodbye to everybody um, and that the feeling in the room had completely changed from what I had originally been taken on board. Um, there was excitement. There was 
you know, it was just an awe-inspiring moment. And the excitement was not just on my end, it was on their end, you know. Um, there was feelings of um, of friendship, you know. And that was when I really had this feeling that, in fact, this, this being, this female, alien being, was somebody that had known me for a long time, that we had known each other for a long time. Um, that's that's the sense that I got from her. Huh, okay. That, and, the re- and so I've had the experience of, Oh, I'm like being confronted with some odd event. Um, I'll tell one in particular, and folks who've listened to the show, you know, I've, I've told this many times, but um, uh, this would have been 1993, January or February of 1993, I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a bright light outside my window. And I sat up in bed and I looked out and there was a, there were five of the classic gray aliens with the big heads and the big black eyes and the skinny little spindly bodies. And the first thought in my head was, oh, they're back. It's them again. And and that struck me. And it, it almost took me, it took me a long time to sort of come to terms with that, you know, like that with that thought. And it was just as, and there was absolutely no sense of emotion. Like there was no emotion at all from my end. It was almost like, someone had uh, turned all the knobs that control emotion and just shut them all down to zero, you know, so there was no emotion. Right. I was completely sucked dry of emotion. Um, And uh, there was a bright light behind them that was small. Um, You know, it wasn't like there was a landed flying saucer or anything like that behind them. It was a small little thing. It probably no bigger than a refrigerator or washing machine or something like that. So, um, and that was what was illuminating the room. And that was kind of a little bit off. This would have been a winter time. So I was living in Maine at the time. So there would have been snow in the yard. And, and then, I mean, the whole thing lasted maybe 20 seconds, 20 to 30 seconds. And these beings were walking towards the house. Uh, and, and I was the only one home. So it was, you know, there was, it wasn't like they were after anyone else. So, um, and then I, heard a voice, now this is complicated, and I don't really know whether it was my own voice or whether it was some sort of projected voice, but the voice clearly said, now is the time to put your head on the pillow and shut down. And I just put my head on the pillow and, and just snapped my, you know, with a, like in a blink of an eye, I was asleep. Um, in you know, after seeing something that should have been extremely frightening. Um, now, you you asked something. You said you or you stated something that you f- things got strangely quiet when you were in the front seat of the car. Yes. And you also said you 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 felt as if you were drifting into a meditative state, or you felt something that felt like a meditative state. Yes. Yeah. And could you just then, now? This is something that so when the story I just told, I dismissed as a dream for a long time, and then some other events took place, and I and I relived. What I mean, the meditative state that you're describing. I'm not sure if you and I are just like experience the same sensation. I called it um, uh, like uh, weirdly vivid, like a like a vivid, like a hyper vivid quality to to a uh, um, to my uh, like the, it felt like the brain chatter, like just the normal day to day chatter, or just like the the, the the, the thought process that just is constantly ticking away in my brain had been switched off. So it did feel dreamlike, uh, right. and, but it, but it wasn't, but it what didn't match any other dream I'd ever had. So uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm, I, this is one of the questions I try to ask people is if, if, if they have experienced 
that same state. And I'm not sure if when you said you were in the meditative state, if, if you and I are describing a similar distortion of reality, let's say. In that particular instance, and back in 1987, I'd have to say no, you know, um, because part part of the memory of the experiences that I had back in 1987, I had to go back and recount them through hypnosis. Other parts of the memory were very physical. I, I remember absolutely the physical sensations as, as real and as vivid as anything I've ever experienced in my life it, with no dream-like qualities to it whatsoever. Now, later on in my life, I've had some experiences that would be very, could be described very similar, Mike, to the way that you've had your experiences with them. Um, my understanding of that, like, alien is a, is a terrible term almost to use because it's got so many connotations actually associated. You know, these are these are beings, as you know, that come from a, a different place than we understand. And and I've I sense that when you're interacting with them, or when I'm interacting with them, it's almost impossible to separate because you're interacting with a different consciousness. It's it's almost impossible to separate out the fact that you there is some kind of conscious exchange occur between you and them, you know, at some level, maybe even at a deeper level. And so there's always this propensity to have some form of a dreamlike quality or state to some of the experiences that happen and others, you know, you kind of catch yourself in, in between states, I guess. Um, and I think that's also a um, kind of like a precondition or a condition that exists sometimes when these beings are interacting with us for the sake of helping us helping them control us so that we don't hurt them and, and we don't hurt ourselves. And and also to interpret experiences in a way that are more constructive for us. Yeah. And, and whether it's, you know, it just seems like there's the, the it feels like this reality itself is distorted and that's the only way I can say it. And then yes. somehow, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I know what you're saying. It's almost as if when they came in, I described it to somebody that, you know, when I've had experiences past 1987 with them, at times if they come into the bedroom, it feels as if there is this giant spoon that would come in and swirl around the room and make everything in the room kind of like disappear. You know, it was as if everything in reality that had substance to it was no longer had substance to it. It's, it was no longer solid. You know, it's almost as if you almost semi-enter a dream world of some sort uh, with and I, I hate using that term, a dream world, but you certainly enter into almost a, a different reality with them. You know, they, or they certainly have the capacity maybe to change the rules of reality the way we understand them to be. Here, here's my little take on it now, and that is I, we know from quantum physics that, that a consciousness, like when human beings are looking at things, that we change the way the quantum world works. When we, but we have no idea what a consciousness would do that's 10 times more you know, stronger or 100 times or 1,000 times or 10,000 times stronger than the ones that we have. You know, when you're dealing with a consciousness at that level, maybe they have the capacity to, alternate, to alter uh, reality the way we understand it to be just by being in their presence. And um, I, mean, I mean, who knows? You know, that's more maybe a, a long-term question but, uh, that I don't have answers to. But the feeling and the exposures that I've had to them certainly might compare with yours very well. And that is the sense that there are times that I wonder whether or not they have that real ability to alter or change reality the way we understand it to be when we're in their presence. Now, this would have been probably 
2005 or so, maybe 2006, I had a dream. It might have been, I, I could figure it out, 2000. Anyway, I'm not going to worry about the date. Um, but, uh, and, and I'm convinced that this, I, I had a series of dreams over a summer. And and I and I called them my reassuring dreams, and they felt like they were projections. They felt like they were theatrical projections, sort of implanted into my dreamscape, in order to teach me a little lesson. And then the lesson was almost always, um, uh, you know, that that not to be freaked out, um, that that it's not as intense as you're making it. So here's one of the dreams. And this is very much a dream. So don't like people, I'll tell this story to right. people and they'll go, wait a minute, did, did this really happen? And like, no, it never happened. It was a dream. So um, I was at my brother's house and he, uh, and I, and I've actually, it's just like, it's kind of a mythic house. It didn't really make sense. It didn't really match any real house, but it was kind of suburban standard suburban house. And he says, Hey Mike, uh, I want to show you something. So um, I go, great. What is it? And he said, you follow me to the garage. This guy I work with, he had this thing and he worked for the government. He had it. He just needed to get it off of his hands. And so, so I took it I'm like, okay. So he opens the, like from inside the kitchen, you know, go down the hallway. And so, so he walked into the garage from the house and um, he flips the light on and there's a flying saucer sitting in his garage, a little sort of tidy little flying saucer. It's kind of partially disassembled as if like the secret government had been taking it apart or something like that, you know, like, a, and he right. said, yeah, you know, like, uh, it's, I just, I, I thought you'd be interested in like, my God, this is so, so weird, Jim. And so, so his, my brother's name is Jim. Um, and then he, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, Mike, cause I have a brother named Mike. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Okay. Do you have a sister named Jeannie? <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so, so yeah, I tell my brother, Jim, I say, okay, uh, like, yeah, this is so weird. Um, and he's and my brother says, yeah, you know, and if you get too close to it, it distorts reality. And I'm like, whoa, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, go ahead and try it. So I, so I just imagine, you know, like, uh, it was actually up on blocks, like up on, on the saw horses, you know, like as if he was, you know, going to change the oil on it or something. Um, so, so I walk up to it and I get within about, oh, eight, six to eight feet of it and as i move forward like reality dis reality distorts and it is the exact same sensation that i felt in 1993 like it's palpable it's like that that sensation has like um what would you call it like a like it's defined like i recognized it so there i was experiencing the exact same sensation that i had in 1998 excuse me um in 1993, in, in uh, January, February, that when I saw the beings out the window. So I would back away in the dream and then, you know, take a few steps backwards and that distorted reality would go away. I'd walk forward yeah. and it would, it would come back. So I was, I was able to control it. Like I was able to like sort of ease myself in and see myself back. And it felt like it was simply the, the proximity of, of something so alien in, in the truest sense of the word, not so much in the, you know, thing from another planet. But I think if you look in Webster's Dictionary, it says the definition of alien is something that is so different as to be unknowable is one of the definitions. Right. So, um, and and I will reiterate that that dream, as, as well as a handful of others, felt like it was put in my subconscious specifically to give me that tangible lesson Um and and then I've since had that feeling a few other times. So what it has done is confirmed that the event in 1993 was real. Like the, the morning after that event, yeah. after seeing the beings out my right. window, I didn't even bother. I didn't even bother looking to see if there were footprints in the snow. Um, why would I? Because yeah. it was obviously so bizarre and total dream and dismissible. And, and how could I even, 
you know, think that it was real. But in, you know, now, you know, over 20 years later, I am, uh, I feel strongly that the event happened. Um, I don't know the, the grand reality of like all the ins and outs of what happened, but there was some event that happened that night and that, you know, in reliving that sensation, that dream-like sensation, um, is basically a, a form of confirmation for me. Yeah, I, I, I think that you've stumbled upon a very important um, aspect to this phenomenon, and that is these beings do have the ability to somehow influence, maybe communicate, uh, work through our dream state, whether it's our consciousness working with their consciousness at some level that we don't fully understand or whether they could plant these particular seeds in our, our conscious memory and then it processes itself. Whatever the mechanism is, is this ability for them to interact with us during our dream state? And, and no question about that. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, as I was going through my experiences too, I would have dreams with them and then there would be what I'd call these, you know, here's my dream world, I know that's a dream world, and here's a world of experiences that I'm going to say, I'm not sure if it's a dream, or I, I, it, it may or may not be, and then here's the ultimate reality, these are the ones I know for sure never dreams, um, and uh, I have no qualms at all saying this is absolutely something that happened in the physical world and absolutely has a physical reality to it, and that's the way I compartmentalize the experiences that I've had. But I don't even know if compartmentalizing them is actually the best way of doing it because really it's it's all you know pulling itself together to to express itself in a way that you and I and many others uh, can have some peace in our lives and, and come to at least integrate that experiences into our lives. Yeah, yeah. Hey, now I'm going to jump back to the events from uh, 1987. And you, sure. uh, here before I, so you, you, what do you do for an occupation? Um, my position is CAO or Executive Director uh, for um, Health and Safety Organization in, in Canada. And we provide health and safety training and services and oversee safety training programs for the neighborhood of about 60-odd thousand employees that are dispersed through a large geographical area somewhere the size of Texas. <laughs> so, Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so the reason I ask is because this comes up because of your training. Um, I mean, you would obviously, you've had the experience of going to a job site and, and if you bump your head on something, you probably have to say like, Oh, you need to, you need to fix that. Um, right. Yeah. So, so you had an event when you were, or like you had a, uh, let's say, um, a realization when you were on board this ship that, uh, the, just the height of the ceilings was not, yeah, just go ahead and, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Yeah, I, I do. Oh, one of the things was that um, the in my early years, I went to uh, college and uh, took a program in industrial hygiene, and also known as occupational hygiene. And what the program was is about training you to identify risks and health hazards on the workplace. A lot of it was assessing the environment. In fact, all of it was assessing the work environment. You would look at everything from ventilation systems. We studied radiation. We studied uh, diseases. We studied um, uh, respiratory diseases, respiratory ailments, and all the things that could actually compromise your health as a worker at, on, on job sites. And I've had the opportunity to go through nuclear power plants and work with nuclear gauge systems and just a myriad number of things over my years. And I, I currently hold the management role right now, which is I get less into the field than I used to. But all of these experiences I, I was able to use back at that point in time when I was assessing the, the general 
um, environment that I was in because it was such an, an alien environment. Obviously, I knew I was in an alien environment. And I part of my brain immediately went to, you know, assessing how things were constructed, why they were constructed the way they were. And one of the things was, was when I was walking down one of the hallways, I noticed that the hallway height itself was designed at the height that was quite comfortable for me, but it was far greater height than the beings that were with me at the time. And I'm thinking, well, good Lord, you know, why they designed a ceiling in this ship that was so high when these beings are so small? And then it struck me, I said, well, you know, the reason why we design the doors we do, the reason why we design the homes that we do, our cars and everything else, is because what we call anthropometric um, um, measurements. So the way our human body is constructed and built and everything else, it is, you know, we have some general anthropometric measurements that we use when we're constructing buildings and stuff. And in fact, a lot of standards are built around that, whether it's steps, doors, windows, all those types of things. Now, the other part of it is to do with uh, some health and safety issues and comfort issues, all those other types of things. But there's a general parameter that we always consider, um, you know, beings, you know, a human's height, size, average height and size, which changes from, you know, time to time. But generally, there's are some specific averages. Make a long story short, the environment that I exist, that I was found myself in was completely suitable for me. You know, we're looking at about 21 degrees um, Celsius or 72 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures, very comfortable, clean air, so the oxygen levels and everything else completely compatible to, to Earth's atmosphere. And of course, all this is registering in my mind, and, and the lighting was very bright in, the, in this place. There wasn't any, you know, it wasn't dark and dingy or anything else like this. It was clean. It was almost antiseptic. It was, you know, all the lines were clean. It, there wasn't any organic uh, feeling to anything that was in there. Uh, it was very well structured, extremely well designed. Um, and again, the, the hallways themselves were, were very wide. You know, they weren't cramped at all. And I started to realize, I said, my God, I said, this is built, this whole ship, everything that I'm walking through is built to deal with human beings. That's the, that's the intent of the design of the ship. You know, I don't know where these beings came from, but it couldn't be the, an environment that was identical to, you know, to my environment in which I exist. They come from a different world. Um, you know, the chance of them having an identical environment to us, gravity and everything else, is extreme. I think it would be low. I don't know. Like, we don't know. We have a lot of data to look at, but I'd say if just from an assumption standpoint, I have to think it would be low. Certainly, their physical characteristics already would suggest they existed or, or evolved in an environment that would look different than, than Earth's environment. And yet, here they are, somehow being able to interact with me, physically interact with me, touch me, move me, without any problems, you know, without struggling through it. And then it occurred to me that also that these beings must be extraordinarily adaptive. So somehow they've adapted themselves to be able to exist in, you know, our environment and to have interactions with us in a way that would not be difficult for them. So we're kind of a species they are. Whatever they do, they, they can adjust themselves to almost any environment. I don't know what their limitations are, but... Uh, you know, that part of it. And in fact, also that the ship itself was designed uh, and engineered, if maybe put it another way, was specifically engineered to deal with human beings. Um, was an extraordinary realization. Yeah, that, that struck me. I mean, I've always mused about that, you know, from written accounts. You know, like, wow, that is interesting, you know, that um, 
you know, but I mean, you just you just laid it out in the book so clearly. Just uh, I mean, just things like air pressure. I mean, you change the air pressure yeah. just slightly, and it's ter- it'd be horrible for a person. Um, you know, you change yeah. the temperature just slightly. You change the, I mean, the you know, all of it, the gravity. Yes, so I thought you did a beautiful job at that point in the book, and it really made me think. Now, now, what it what it made me think is that, um, uh, you know, less. You know, so my thought was, you know, perhaps they, the the UFO occupants, are somehow, in a way, we may not be able to understand. They are from here. I mean, they, in essence, they have, you know, they have two arms, two legs, two eyes, one nose. You know, so they have these yeah. these. I mean, shouldn't if they're truly aliens, shouldn't they be just like, you know, amoebas or giant squids or something yeah. like that? You know, why? <laughs> you know, yeah, you walking see where around I'm going like with this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, you know, the experience that I had with them, there's some differences that are not subtle that would suggest they are completely alien. They come from a different world than, than we exist in. Maybe the problem is, is my perception, and that is I perceive that I'm part of Earth, right? Like I had my mother, my father here, my family is here. This is all I know. Their view is that maybe we are part of the universe. We don't own the planet. You know, we don't own a country. We don't own anything. You know, we are, humanity is part of the universe, just as they are part of the universe. And, you know, they don't, I remember this one particular statement uh, that came from Johnny Mack's work, too, that kind of defined it for me. It was when, when one of the gentlemen who had contact with these beings was really shooken up. And he, he said, what really shook me up is when I asked them where they were from. And one of the beings said, we are from everywhere. Yes, and, and that's the kind of almost you know uh, Zen Cohen answer that that yes. that that you would get not from that's I mean that's the answer that would come from a from a from a you know a guru or a mystical master sitting in the lotus position right. on a mountaintop, in a way. Right. And, and the person is saying this with you know this being is saying this with total sincerity, with with utter truthfulness and and complete understanding of where of why they're saying this. And that's, it's not the person saying it, you think, that, oh, well, it's just coming from another person there. This is actually coming from some being that has this absolute, complete understanding that it just shakes you. And, and, and it does. It, it, it touches your soul in a way that you never thought possible. And you realize how little you understand of the world that you exist in. You know? and, and how much more we could benefit, I suppose, from understanding how these beings perceive themselves and ourselves in the grander scheme of the universe. I think in the book, too, I mentioned that I really do believe that, that humanity is going to survive. You know, we're, we're going to push past the struggles that we have, uh, but I, I believe it's going to be a very big struggle to do that. You know, we're, we're not, it's not going to be an easy process by any stretch of the imagination, yet these beings see us as, as having a purpose and a place in the far grander scheme of the universe itself. Um, maybe we will, you know, have a close, I'm hoping we're going to have closer relationships with them. I, I uh, you know, I, I hope that we can mutually benefit from each other. And, uh, but I think that we're, we are probably very much on the receiving end from the benefit side of things right now, at least the way I see it. Uh, you know, we have a lot to be thankful for them then that we don't even realize at this point in time. But they're not in it to get thanks and accolades. You know, there I don't there's an ego side to to it. I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, how could they sit back and allow uh 
parts of humanity to cast stones so many times towards them and, and talk about how bad they are and everything else when they are just trying to help us. But, you know, there's, I think, uh, you, I have come to peace, at least to some degree of peace with that. That's just the way we are. You know, we tend to construct fearful things about things we don't understand. And, and there's a lot we don't understand about this, so it's easy to be fearful about it. Um, but obviously my my modus operandi in the book and the ultimate goal is that we can push past our fears and we have the capacity to develop an intimate relationship, not only with these beings, but certainly an improved relationship with each other. Um, and maybe it's all going to happen um, together at the same time. Um, at one point in the book, and it was funny because I, because, you know, I, I picked up the book, I guess the audio copy of the book, um, you know, just thinking that you had had only that one experience and then, um, and there's very much about your tone and about your your thought processes. You're very uh, logical thinker, you know, with a with a seems like what I would call a scientific background. Uh, and at, you just sort of at one point just kind of dropped this bomb. I thought where you said you saw you could see auras around people, and you yeah. talked about your friend that was a smoker. But I mean, so so yeah, I yeah. want to hear more about that. You just kind of you didn't really talk much about it. So can you actually see auras around folks? Yes, I can. Yeah. So it's nothing I really, you know, portray in my, my job. You know, I, I don't, it, it's distracting essentially, you know, and I'm in an administrative position. Um, there's a lot of work I have to do with lots of different people. You know, I, I, I find myself relatively intuitive, certainly more intuitive now than I've ever been in my life. And I think part of that has to do with my, these beings interactions with and I do use it to help me make decisions on a daily basis and those types of things. But, you know, seeing auras, I, I wasn't born with that ability. That ability came about, you know, later on in life. And hold and on, just let me, I, let me interrupt. Would that have been later yeah. on after the initial uh, uh, event in, in 1987? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know, that, it, it, it changes... Um, I began to, I, obviously I can draw the dots, you know, and I, I, I'm only connecting the dots. They didn't tell me this, but I really do believe that they, whatever they're doing to us, you know, has this ability to improve, not make us all psychics, but certainly improve our, our spiritual energy, if I put it that way. And when you, when you do that, you also open up, you know, this opportunity to be more psychic, be more intuitive, if you want to use that term. And a sidebar to all of that is, is uh, sometimes you can see auras. You know, auras, they can be distracting. You know, if they're functional, if there's a good reason to see them and, and, and how they work and that, and you can interpret them in a way, I, great. I think that you should, you know, it would it'd be something wonderful to have in your life. But if you don't know how to interpret them or, or to what advantage you're going to use them with, then they're kind of a distraction. <laughs> so, you know, so for me, um, I don't really pay attention to them when I'm during a daily work day or anything like that. You know, I, they tend to be more apparent when I'm coming out of a meditation and, and see things. But I, in the last little while, I haven't been distracted too much by the fact that I could see yours. Okay, and that, so you said when you said intuitive, there's like a kind of a line between intuitive and psychic. And I will add that I yeah. have had um, since my coming to well, whatever. That's been sort of a long uh, continuum as I come you know, from when I started looking into my own events, there was this point when I was like, dang, like, I've had these odd life things happen to me and I've just been denying them. I got to look into them. Um, and since going down that path of looking into them, 
I have, I have, a bunch of things have happened. One is I have, um, uh, had some, what I refer to as psychic flashes. I can't control them, but I've had like literally where I've said things out loud, blurted things out loud. Um, I've quite honestly, I've literally said, you know, your birthday is March 17th, 1982. And uh, the person kind of went, uh, yes, it is. And I would have had no way of knowing that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know what that comes from or why it appears, but that is something that I've found in my own, in my own life. And another thing that happened is I have been at the receiving end of synchronicities in a way that, right. that is also almost a form of confirmation for me. Right. Right. I, I think that these are just natural, um, how to put it, these are just natural events that nor, I think would occur once you start having interactions with these beings or become aware of interactions with these beings. I think big parts of your life start to change. You know, uh, it starts to become more spiritual. You become more sensitive to how things are, are actually unfolding around you. And I think that, you know, your soul of who you are is being called to do certain things, maybe slightly different than what you normally have done or where you, where you would have perceived yourself doing 10 years ago or five years ago. You know, and so there's this general evolutionary path that brings you more towards being aware of, of yourself, of who you actually are and, and be drawn, I think in some ways, be drawn towards, towards more spiritual experiences. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I have a close friend and I was writing an essay and the title of the essay was um, Synchronicities in the UFO Abductee. And I kind of was making this these points like, oh, you know, UFO abductees you know, have a lot more synchronicities than, than the general yeah. population. And my friend, and she's very wise, kind of rolled her eyes and she said, anyone on a spiritual path will have more synchronicities, which is which I think is true. Um and so the implication is, you know, if you just take that one step further, then UFO abduction is a spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bit of a leap, but I mean, I think you see where I'm going with that. It's it's not that big of a leap. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, 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 the way it's the way it, that's the way it showed up in my in my you know that's when I had the little light bulb went off in my head was when she said that to me you know like when she said you know anyone on a spiritual path will have more synchronicities. Absolutely. And I'll also add people with um, like uh, near death experiences or outer body experiences uh, uh, or someone who's, you know, uh, studying uh, meditation will also find that synchronicities play more and more a role in their lives. I'm I'm generalizing greatly, but that's that's I feel like that's a a truism. Yeah, I I believe so, too, Mike. I I got a question for you, Mike. What what do you think about... um, the idea that if we could physically prove that encounters with these beings take place, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I'm at the point now where I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, for me personally, like I, I have my own proof. I've got my own confirmation. It took a long time. It took right. six, I don't know, more than that, seven years of, from me sort of first posing the question, huh, maybe I wonder if these experiences mean anything to me. Finally, I just, uh, uh, you know, so, you know, I mean, there is proof. I mean, there is proof in the sense that there's just an overwhelming amount of 
data. You know, some of it is fleeting. Some of it is is uh, is just someone's first person's memories. But there's also, you know, there's, I mean, whatever. You know, Travis Walton had five other people see his thing. There's a yeah. fellow named Chris Bledsoe who had, uh, you know, four other people, um, you know, basically witness all the events that surrounded his abduction experience. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, you know, marks, there's implants that are being removed, you know, all of this is being ignored with contempt by the the very people who are saying, you know, there's no proof. You know what I mean? There's like a scientific community that yep. says, well, if there was proof, uh, you know, and then I just think of John Mack, you know, the, the, there's two stories in John Mack's thing. One is that he was doing what I, what I consider, you know, very intense and open-minded and thoughtful well, I'll, I'll say skeptical too, because I think he was he was approaching it from a, the the initially from the viewpoint of a skeptic, uh, you know. So he he created this big pool of of data, you know, where he he wrote two books on the subject, both of which are very good. I'm sure the files that are in place, you know, where uh, he's he, I know he worked with a lot of people. But the other side of that is is the the infrastructure at you know at Harvard, uh, you know, wanted to crucify him. You know, they basically yeah. tried to. Uh, to kick him out of, you know, a tenured professor, they tried to kick him out of the, of the, uh, of the institution. And I don't think, (laughs) yeah. so, so, I mean, in a way, uh, I mean, in a way on some level, you know, you'd have to, you know, whatever it's, 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 there's, there's no lack of evidence. I think we're being flooded in, in, in evidence. Some of it might not be perfect, but I think collectively it paints a very clear picture. So, you know, I'm less concerned that there's any kind of, Proof, in in a way, what I'm more concerned is that you know that things just continue to to well up from the ground level up, you know. So if a, if a if a professor at Harvard can't, I mean, obviously he made up some giant ripples in the pond, you know. Right. But um, it didn't change. Well, I guess it did. I mean, the ripples will have an effect. So, um, but it didn't dramatically change the way people view the this phenomenon. Now, what's your it, sense? I mean, you, so you asked the question, yeah. what would be your answer to the same question? I've, I've struggled with that for years because I, I think I do have a way to do it. But I'm not sure it would be, you know, a good thing. And that's the reason why I haven't pursued it. And, I, I, and I'm quite serious about it because, you know, I can see the negative feedback to part of that. So, in other words, if you can prove relatively conclusively and separate out from, um, if, you, if you're dealing with subjective matter, that's one thing. But if you're dealing with physical ways of absolutely having a proof that encounters really are occurring, um, then that's, that's a game changer. And, you know, but do, do I want to do that? Do I want to actually pursue that avenue? And I have struggled with that for years, you know, and I still don't, know entirely if I wanted to even do it, to be honest with you. It would certainly be a game changer in a lot of ways, but again, I don't know how much of a game changer it's going to be or if it's going to be really worth the effort to, to do it. So, and, and there's consequences, both you know, negative consequences and, and maybe some positive consequences. It tends, depends on how, it, how it's going to be handled. Um, you know, I worry some, to some extent you know, if if these being, you know, like look at humanity, right? We we tend to marginalize people anyway, and particularly if if they prove that the UFO phenomenon is absolutely real, and there's no doubt about it, 
then they look may may look at you know uh, Mike like you and me, people like you and I, as possibly threats. You know, I, that's what I think about having. too. The, the pitchforks, you know, I just kind of I, I worry yeah. about you know people like surrounding my house with pitchforks and torches. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> you know the day the day you that know, Obama announces that you know the UFO phenomena is real, all they got to do is like you know I'm I'm like you know two mouse clicks away from you know my identity would be easy to find and yeah yeah and then the next thing they announce that you know we we think this this could possibly be of, of uh, a national threat, right? That's, Absolutely. That's, I mean, it's a, that's that's a logical a game changer, right? That's you know, that's one way to look at it. Sure. So maybe it's too being too paranoid about it, but um, you know, that certainly is one potential scenario. So I think that that's why you know I haven't been very you know uh, I haven't pushed very hard for that idea of us going down that road to, to you know physically prove it. Um, Maybe it's some anonymity in this, and some questioning is probably a little bit better, you know, for for some people. And yet, I'm always torn by the idea that those people who are having experiences and struggling with it, if we had some kind of a treatment a treatment regime um, that would help them cope with these experiences in, in a more productive way, it would certainly help us being able to separate those from who are having legitimate experiences from those who aren't or who are struggling with some other type of psychosomatic illness. That, that's unrelated to the actual UFO encounter phenomena or the abduction phenomena. You know, what I've often thought about is like having some organized thing, like pick some random date three years from now and call it, you know, like National UFO Abductee Coming Out Day. And then just, you know, make sure that it's on the Internet, make sure that everyone knows about it somehow or another, whether it's just through social media or through, you know, literally buying TV ads or something, you know. So everyone knows that I'm just going to, you know, like I'll pick a day like January 1st, you know, 2016, uh, that that anyone who's had the abduction thing, you know, is given permission to come forward and say, you know, like, you know, me too, because I think there, I, I don't know the numbers and I know people have like, you know, there's a Roper poll that was, I think in the late eighties, early nineties was yeah. undertaken and all, and I don't know, I mean, I, whatever, I worked in advertising. I know a little bit about how statistics work. Um, it's hard to pin down a number in any quantifiable way, in my opinion, but what I can say with certainty, uh, it's a lot a lot of people are having these experiences and that's all. I mean, I, and I would have, so, and I could say with that, you know, just my email inbox alone, you know, I, I run this little teeny humble blog that doesn't really get that many hits. And let me tell you that the, the people who are reaching out to me and, and I apologize to, to folks cause I, I can't, you know, like I can't get back in a meaningful way to everyone who connects with me. But, um, and I suspect you've had the same thing happen where, um, you've, you realize that this is not a a marginal, tiny, isolated phenomenon. This is impacting a lot of people's lives. It is, and it's a growing phenomenon. And you know, I see the as you do, Mike, as well. You know, we 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 are really at the forefront where we can see what's coming down the road. We know this is a growing phenomenon. It's a changing and evolving phenomenon, and it's evolving not in a you know to to a point where it's going to vanish. It, it's evolving to a point where this is going to be a very, very important component of how humanity is going to evolve in the future. So it's going to present some extremely difficult questions and some tremendous challenges for us. Um, the interesting thing is, is how are we going to come about making the changes that we need to do uh, so that we can address this phenomenon in a way that's more constructive for those people who are struggling with it. Like, like you and I are the lucky ones. You know, I think that 
you know, we are the lucky ones in a sense that we've been able to integrate these experiences in, in a productive way for our lives, and we've dealt it with it in a way that we feel that we are called to do. And when I see poor individuals who are struggling with this rationalization of these experiences and, and have not had the same kind of luck that you know, I have had or, or the same fortune that you and I have had, um, that's what I worry about. You know, because I think that I, wish, I, I really do get concerned about those individuals who are struggling with it. I, I just hope that they don't, you know, get the uh, get labeled as some kind suffering from some kind of illness, mental illness, when in fact they're not. You know, that's that's you know a correct diagnosis of the trauma and associated with it, and the appropriate treatment plan, which is really hasn't been very well defined, should be implemented. We're the lucky ones, really. I think so, um, and I think many people will be able to handle these experiences. But I think there'll certainly be those that that won't be able to, and those are the people I, I I do worry about. Well, now, so I mean, I mean, I don't know if I'm lucky because I mean, I mean, I in no uncertain terms, man, I have been thrown into the depths of depression <laughs> and uh you know and when and, and I, I basically laugh. no i mean no you don't i mean i understand but i mean i i have been through serious depression in my life and and uh um i'm and it has gotten i don't know whether like whatever my life has changed dramatically in these last seven years since i started looking into this uh and not for the better i mean i have become very isolated in a lot of ways um and uh so but the, you know, it's interesting, like earlier on, I said, you know, like, I don't really feel like I've been marginalized because of this, um, that what I can follow up with that is I have marginalized myself. I have, yeah. you know, I have, you know, whatever has been going on is I have, uh, I went to a therapist recently and, and, uh, and, uh, she, there's something called rapid eye, it's an eye movement thing that she has a little machine. And, and I, I heard in town that this woman had had that machine and, I'd read that this was beneficial for coming to terms with, you know, what it, what, what it's playing out. And I'm not a doctor and what, what some therapists have told me is, and this is actually interesting before I had even, before I had even looked into the UFO thing in my life, I, you know, basically sat on the therapist's couch and they, you know, they heard my issues and my insecurities and my, you know, depression issues and stuff like that. And they, she kind of scratched her head and she said, you, you're suffering from trauma. And I'm like, I don't have any trauma in my life. I, you know, like what trauma do I have? I don't, you know, like I, uh, and I don't feel like, you know, I'll, I, mean, I don't feel like there's any sort of buried like sexual trauma that would have happened in my youth. I, I sense that never happened. So that I think is not part of the equation. And then it was, it was after that, some years after that, that I started looking into these kind of foggy, memories as a boy I had missing time and I'd seen UFOs and such. So, um, uh, you know, I'm at this point, I'm, I'm not concluding, but I'm definitely contemplating and looking at the timeline of my depressive episodes as well right. as the timeline of my odd memories. You know, I had a memory when right. I was 12 years old of seeing a UFO and then later on, uh, uh, of a missing time event. And it was right around that time that I definitely felt, you know, what I would now call clinical depression. So, um, oh, and yet, oh, you know, and you've come through that, Mike, you know, and just talking to you right now and, and going through that journey, I mean, you've come out of it, but how much easier would it have been had it been identified early on and how much easier would it have been if we would have had, you know, a, an adequate, I'll call it treatment regime or some kind of a process that we could say, hey, you know what, if you've had these experiences, 
here's the likely the side effects of it. We'll evaluate you. We'll tell you, you know, okay, this is what you're suffering from. Here's what we're going to do to help you through this process. Exactly. Uh, and, 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 I mean, it doesn't even show up, I don't think, in like the uh, psychiatrist desk manual. I mean, there's a name for that manual. Yeah. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Oh, so here, I'll, I started one little story. I'll just finish it up quick here. Uh, sure. So this is this was, I think, last year. Um, you know, I, I went to this uh, psychi- or family practitioner, psychi- psychologist, I guess, um, because she had this rapid eye movement or this eye movement tool and it's just some simple thing where it basically looks like a, a little dot moving back and somehow or another the act of your eyeballs moving back and forth in your head has been shown to be beneficial for relieving the effects of you know uh, stress and post-traumatic stress disorder so you know I said well that's that's an avenue I should try that so I went and talked to her in the very first visit I sit down I'm very open with this stuff as calmly as I could be I say okay here's my issues I've this is what my life has been like and now I, I'm you know I'm contemplating seriously that I've been abducted by aliens I have a blog I do these interviews I've got like over 400 posts where I talk about my own experiences and and uh, and she nods politely and so then the hours up and then I come back for the next visit a week later and I walk in and before I even have a chance to sit down she says um have you ever considered going on antipsychotic medications? And I'm like, uh, actually, no, I've never considered that. <laughs> and she said, hmm, okay, because I think it might be a good idea. And uh, and I was shocked. Oh, did I lose you? Oh, I lost no, you. No, not at all. Oh, oh, I thought I lost you. I'm... No, not at all. You have me engaged. <laughs> so, so yeah, so so there I was, you know, kind of, and I didn't, and, and once again, you said you felt total sympathy and understanding for folks, folks that are skeptical, and, and I was like, you know, it's like, oh, God, I'm so, like, you know, whatever issues I'm dealing with are so ignored as to be considered, you know, I mean, I don't know, like, I, you know, I, I don't feel that I need psych, any psychotic medication. Um, she felt that it was a good idea after talking to me for, 50 minutes the week before. Um, so uh, it was just, a, it made my heart sink. Let me put it that way. You know, Mike, absolutely. And I, I, to, I, which I did not cover in this book was that I really do believe that I suffered through some form of post-traumatic stress as a result of, of my experience back in 1987 without question. Oh, and and again, I, you know, I, I, the experiences that we're having with these beings, it is extraordinarily difficult for them. It's extraordinarily difficult for us. It feels forced because it's happening when we're probably not ready to have it. You know, it, it's, it's not happening at the ideal time. Um, it's happening because of our actions in this planet and on this world, and it has forced the issue, you know, and... and I think, without question, I believe in my mind, believe in my heart, that if they could have delayed any of this, they would have delayed it. I, I believe that they, they that you were know, just too fragile. Um, oh, oh, so so to, let me just let me just interrupt. So let me just interrupt. So when you say they they would have delayed it, so if we had been yeah. proceeding forward and we had vent, invented, uh, you know, found out the secrets of uh, of. Uh, of uh, the nuclear bomb and such like that. And and instead of actually dropping it on a bunch of cities uh, and then, you know, building thousands of them, if we had had like a little conference and said like, Oh, let's, uh, you know, let's, let's not use this. Let's just put this on the shelf and, and, and never, and never use this. Um, 
and a few other things, maybe dealing with pollution and whatnot, that they would have not intervened in the way that we're seeing it. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. In fact, their perception, and I'm going to paraphrase this because this is not what they told me or anything like this, but this is my understanding from having multiple dealings with them and contemplating on some of the things that have been discussed. But humanity is spiritually retarded for some reason. For, for some reason, whatever it is, our spiritual development has not progressed at the same pace as our technological development. And, and this imbalance in our world is creating all of our problems. And their perception is that this imbalance has to be corrected. And taking away our technology isn't the way that it's going to be corrected. A rapid spiritual evolution is the only way that's really going to fix the things that need to be fixed. But that can't happen without a number of things taking place. But this rapid spiritual evolution, they believe that they have to be involved in some process to do that and to assist in that process. So, um, you know, and, and they also feel that they absolutely need to do this now. Absolutely need to do it now. This is not a time they, they can't wait any longer. They've waited as long as they possibly can. And there is some urgency and some deep concern about what's going to happen in our world and what is happening in our world. Um, and um, you know, that's, that has not just been conveyed to me. It's been conveyed to many, many other people who have these types of experiences. Um, so there's a lot of hope for us, I think. But I don't think we should ignore the fact of how difficult these things are on individuals, both myself uh, and you, Mike, and, and millions of others. Um, if we could come up with a a more sensible response to the phenomenon, you know, both in from a scientific and intellectual standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, if we could really truly get you know the good people involved with this program, I think we could have a lot greater success. Certainly, minimize the amount of suffering that that is going on with individuals who have these encounter experiences. Because it's not specifically, this effort would not go unnoticed by the general public in a sense because the general public is going to be as involved with this as anybody else. It's going to affect all of us. At some level, at some point, every single individual is going to be affected by the outcome of, of what we do and how we decide to handle this phenomenon. I have not been really um, excited about the fact that you know, so many people view these uh, view the phenomenon as a negative connotation on, on what's happening in the world. And, and I'll say that I, I know don't blame some, them for it. Yeah, and I, I know some people have had the firsthand experience, and boy, they 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 have a dark set of experiences. So, um, you know, there is yeah. evidence to, you know, from people's firsthand experience to, and I don't understand the divergence, you know, between the two experiences because I feel like a just like I said earlier, where I you know I felt like I was emotionally sucked dry, like I feel like I'm. I'm absolutely neutral, you know, uh, or, or like I curiously agnostic about what's going on. And I, and I, and I want it to be what you're describing though, though I'm still like undecided and, and don't know in any, in, you know, any meaningful way what, you know, what is actually going on, but I sure do want it to be what you're, what you're describing. I know in my mind, uh, in my heart, and there's no doubt in my heart that I, that the phenomenon is unfolding in the way it is, the way I understand it to be. Uh, but it doesn't exclude me from being, you know, um, 
pious in the sense that I'm going to be sitting there saying, well, this is the way it has to be for every single person and individual. I, there's there's a, a great divergence with particular types of experiences. I think that it has to do also with um, how the how it's been prescribed by the individuals. Uh, in other words, there's a great deal of psychological assessment that goes on before an initiating event by these beings. And, and so each construct, each way in which individuals are being made aware of these beings' existence and their interaction with their lives is going to be different. Second to that point, there's no definitive scientific way of saying you actually had an experience and you didn't have an experience. And that creates a mudding of the waters. In other words, we have some people who may, let's say, go see um, a psychologist that takes them through a, a regression and, 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 and gives them bad information, uh, has their own perceptions about how bad the experiences are, brings that forward to the individual, and the individual walks away and says, well, my God, you know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This is a tragedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. On the other token, on the other side of it, we could have the same thing happening where someone is saying, well, no, these are totally benevolent beings. There should not be any type of negative experience as a result of your experience with them and everything else. Well, I think that's wrong too. So there, there has to be, I'm saying, like a, a more objective, sensible approach to the phenomena. And we don't really have a proven method of saying, listen, if you've had these experiences, here's a very, uh, here's a very good regime to address those particular issues that you can work on that would help integrate these experiences in a productive way into your life and make this uh, a part of a constructive way of understanding the world around you. That's really what, what should be happening. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, that, that's my dream. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, I, hope, I, I, I agree that I just think that, that um, I mean, I suspect, I mean, I know there's therapists out there. There's a woman named Dr. Janet uh, Colley excuse me, Dr. Janet Coley, um, out of uh, the Seattle area, who's been doing some work, and she's had good results. Um, uh, so, I mean, they're, they're, it just seems so so atomized and so disparate. You know, there's no, it's all these little, little you know, people doing, you know, uh, their, their hard work. Uh, and I think that the internet has the potential to change some of this, but you know they're they're all doing their hard work, and and it seems like there's no there's no unifying place. Maybe a, you know a UFO conference is a kind of a sloppy way to to get together, yeah. but um, you know, to and the unifying in the sense that you know it needs to be taken seriously by you know all kinds of professionals. You know, um, well the problem the, the the crux of it, Mike, is, is I think is funding. So. When you look at, uh, let's say, the formulation and development of a nonprofit organization for the intensive purposes of, of providing a better understanding, uh, we can even call it you know, providing some kind of uh, psychological assistance to individuals who are having abduction encounter experiences. You know, trying to get funding for that is, would be very difficult. I mean, right now you can't get it. I mean, that's you know, the governments have not decided that this is something that that taxpayers want to fund. Oh, oh just um, the opposite, and, where they they the, the governments. I mean, just thinking of my yeah. government here, on the down below the 49th parallel, um, has has decided in you know uh, to dismiss the entire every to dismiss it with contempt. Anything even associated with this phenomenon. Right. So you know, unless something someone who's really wealthy steps forward and says, you know what, I'll, I'll fund the project for a year or two or three. Or um, let's say a university uh, steps forward and says, you know what, we're going to put a big funding program together and we'd like to do this and we would like to get some corporate funding to do these types of projects. Um, you know, and again, it, 
it's difficult for me to see where a corporate a corporation would see a huge advantage to funding something like this or a university, uh, given the uh, given their short-term vision of of what this is happening. But anybody with a long-term vision, anybody with a true understanding of the depth of what this could actually mean, should jump on this pretty quickly and say, hey, you know what? Let's do something in this area, but let's have a defined outcome for why we want to do this. You know, there has to be some kind of a benefit to the organization that's putting money forward in some way, shape, or form. Otherwise, they won't do it. Um, you know, and that's, it, it, it's difficult. You know, it, it, I think it's, it, I, I appreciate some of the people who are in government. I mean, someone came to me and I was a government official and I said, hey, I'd like to get some funding for this. I'd go like, okay, so what are the, what's the upside and what's the downside? And, um, it would become pretty evident that there, the downside to doing it may be more than the upside by quite a bit. So that would certainly hamper any kind of funding. Yeah, and I'm just thinking that the the one thing I would be concerned with in a way, which is whatever now that it seems like our Internet is monitored and our phone calls are all monitored yeah. in a way, like, you know, they know anyways, but, you know, that, that it would be used as a, oh, I just feel there's some evidence uh, and I don't have any proof, but I mean, this is just sort of anecdotal, just kind of whisperings within the the UFO research community that the uh, the military, in particular, is doing some sort of screening to find people who are UFO abductees, and the the implication is that those folks would, in essence, score higher on a psychic test. And they are screening them and looking for them, particularly to see if they can use their psychic skills um, as a way to, you know, to their benefit, let's say. So the thing that I would worry about is that that's just sort of the weaponization of 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 the these individuals, you know, what they might be used or, you know, so that then and that, that sounds like a little bit, you know, kind of a yeah. like a bad X-Files episode. But, you know, so that 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 would that comes to mind so. I, yeah, for, yeah, I, I, that may be, you know, I mean, there's always some clandestine approaches to the military complex that, I'll call it the grand industrial military complex that exists currently in the United States, which is the largest military, the most powerful military in the world. You know, I, I'm coming from a country that, you know, we depend on the United States to, as big brother. <laughs> That's why we don't have to have a big military. But it doesn't change the fact that, that, you know, I don't think the, you know, the military itself, I mean, let's look at the long-term lifespan of the U.S. military. I mean, could it be perceivable that it's actually, you know, on its last legs? In other words, you know, if if the world goes in the direction that these things are worried and that it's going to go, the militaries will be applying themselves to the great extent against each other. And at the end of the day, we're not going to have a need for military, not the military the way we understand it today. But this could be 20 or 30 years from now. But, you know, so whatever the grand industrial military complex is today, yes, it'll probably get stronger in the future. Yes, it'll probably get bigger in the future. But in the long-term future, I don't think it has a big future in humanity. I, I think it's going to have to change dramatically. I think it will change. And I, and, I, and I will also add that I think everything needs to change dramatically. You know, all everything of it needs to change. Needs to change. Yeah, yeah, everything, like, you know, from yeah. from how we get our water to, to, you know, how we educate our children. To So anyway, so I agree, yeah. It's kind of like the old thing, you know, like, you know, let the baby have its bottle. You know, if it, if it wants to do that and check people out, whatever. You know, I, I can't say yes or no that that's actually happening. 
but you know it, it's almost like the, the last throes of, of an organization that believes in its invincibility when really its its lifespan is is being you know calculated down in, in a ways that they don't fully they probably will never really understand. Yeah, it definitely has the, you know, it almost has the flavor of like the wounded rat in the corner, you know, like trying to, <laughs> it's like doing its final like death lunge, you know, to, you know, to, yeah, I just have a sense that like whatever's going on, it has that, that feeling where it's just like, God, yeah. how, you know, it's, it's just feels so desperate in a way that I don't see that it needs to be that desperate, you know, so. You know, uh, the rules of war always change and the need for war and the, the reason why we need militaries is because of, uh, you know, we live in a violent world. And um, if the violence disappears, if we find a way to live in peace with each other, then there's no need for a military. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I certainly don't advocate, you know, uh, you know, everyone laying down there. I mean, I just think the world's a messy place and, you know, turning, yeah. turning our swords into plowshares <laughs> yeah. you know, collectively uh, Not gonna you know, happen tomorrow, tomorrow. Is, isn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate it. So, um, yeah, and nor would I. Yeah. You know, nor would I. And and I don't know what that makes me, you know. It may, is this make me a realist or does it make me uh, somebody who's, uh, I don't know, you know, um, really kind of playing two sides against each other. But I'm just, I just try to see the world the way it is, you know. Yes, it needs to change. Yes, it will change. And, and yes, like you having the show uh, and me writing the book. And I, I think doing little things that are big things in our lives, but doing things to change the world, to change the perception of it has happened, is happening. And I'm hoping it's going to continue to occur for the better. I agree completely. Yeah. And I think that I, I just see, you know, like whatever I feel like, whatever I'm doing, um, you know, like I am tossing a very small pebble into, into a pond. And, you know, so there are ripples happening and, you know, they're not as, you know, I would love them to be, you know, break big tsunamis of change, but that's not the way it's happening. So, um, but I do sense that in the bigger picture, like I do sense a collective change in, you know, little by little by little people. So just my interactions with folks, you know, what they, what I consider folks open-minded about now. And if I turned the clock back, you know, a decade, they, they would not have been as open-minded. Hey, one more question. I ask this to everyone. Have you ever had any odd experiences with owls? No, I haven't. Okay, there you go. Okay, so I, 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 I often I ask that of everyone, and everyone's you know I, some people will have very strange experiences with owls. Hey, here, so I'll ask another question. How would you um, define the role of the shaman in in our society right now? It's sort of a metaphysical. I think the role of the sh- yeah, I think the role of the shaman. Um, has to play a more prominent role than it currently has. I I, I was born and raised Catholic, um, you know. Yet my beliefs have changed quite a bit over that period of time. And what I've come to do is respect the what what traditional shamans had actually brought to individual societies. I, to think that our society doesn't need more spiritual guidance would be crazy. You know, we we do need more spiritual guidance. We need individuals that can help uh, other people um, through this very difficult time as, as the world changes around us and as individual lives change. So I think there's a greater need and a greater role for a shamanistic um, approach in our society. And the reason I ask that, and I ask it on pretty much every show, both the questions, the owls, I've, the, one of the reasons I ask the owl question is because I have had a lot of personal owl experiences that are bizarre, that don't make sense, and they're, they're real owls. I, I don't feel that they're screen memories of a, of a 
like a UFO event. Um, I feel like I'm interacting with real owls and it's, it's, um, and it's been a pattern that other people have shared. They've, I've heard a lot of stories from folks, but anyway, so then the shaman question, and the reason I ask that is because, um, the, you know, John Mack wrote a book of comparing and contrasting the UFO abduction phenomena to the initiation process or the indoctrination process of of a shaman. You know, right. very similar. And I, if the Passport to the Cosmos is the name of the book, it's fascinating. And um, and since reading that book, I've just kind of always, I never really thought too much about it, but I've always kept my, you know, my radar open to what that may or may not be. And I'm sensing that if there is a shaman. Uh, like the like it's it it has to play our society is different than what would be a tribal village in a jungle somewhere so we would need a different shaman and um is this ufo contact experience and the people coming back with these stories are these people in a way in a position to be you know or to play a role that would be similar to the modern shaman um, and I know that may sound lofty. And I just think of your book in particular. No, I think in some ways some of them will be, but I believe that everyone will have a different kind of like agenda in their own. When you when you come into this world, I think you, you, you come in with a certain amount of, this is what you're going to do in this world. You know, it's not t- typically laid out exactly, exactly, but there's a general sense of what your soul is here to learn and, and what your soul is here to do. Um, to that extent, you know, when you're having contact with beings that are of a great, of a, of a spiritual nature, much different than us, I think that that inevitably is going to draw you into a more spiritual world. And when we are, and the idea of shamans who deal within that spiritual realm much more, I think that there is a link, uh, a casual link to um, maybe a draw towards more shamanistic practices once you have these kind of contact experiences. So I, again, to, to answer your question, I think there's, it's more likely. Uh, but again, I have to think there's also the appreciation that individually we have our own... You, know, you can be a shaman in your own life and not actually be a shaman. You know? sure, in other sure. words, you could, a, be a, you could be a shaman to, to your family and to your friends um, and, and, and act in that way without having to, to have a practice of being a shaman. Um, so that's kind of the way I, I look at it. And I, you know, in, in many ways, Mike, you know, we, we're being called to, you know, help each other. I think that one of the big things, I think what your radio show does is open up a forum for us to be able to converse, uh, to share ideas on and, and to provide opportunities for healing and understanding. And that is, you know, that's a noble and, and lofty endeavor in, in any way, shape, or form. And that really is, again, almost like a shamanistic um, approach to doing things. And I think that sh- the term shaman is kind of like, like, well, I, if I lived in a jungle in Brazil and, you know, was, was, you know, raised in that environment, um, I, I would have a different definition. But, you know, for, for me, you know, whitey and the, in the privileged USA, you know, like, you know, yeah. shamanism is like saying spirituality. It's, it's so open-ended that it's almost doesn't, you know, it can mean anything in a yeah. way. So, um, and that's why I ask folks the, def- the you know their definition because I do think it's interesting. If if when I feel very strongly that these experiences are real, they're important. There there's a profound reason behind them, or they wouldn't be happening. Um, Absolutely. And then uh, you know, and then what 
role like you and I can play. I mean, I honestly feel that that my uh, like the the way this blog and the way my my online little interview series has has sort of welled up, um, like I. I I wouldn't say this unless there was a thread of truth to it because it's going to sound kind of crazy, but it feels like I was compelled by an outside force to do it. I wouldn't be surprised at all, Mike. Yeah. Wouldn't be surprised at all. Hey, um, this has been great. Uh, anything you want to say just to sum this up? We've been going at it for just about two hours now. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those good ones. Um, I, I hope you've enjoyed this, um, this conversation, Mike. I, I sure have. Um, I feel that if there is one thing to leave you with is, is the fact that what we're dealing with here is, is not a contact situation in which we had previously. I think many of our people and scientists and everything else thought that contact would happen in a certain way, and it's not happening in that way. Uh, what we're dealing with is an intervention, it, and, um, and that is very, very different, and it has a whole set of other parameters that we have to consider. I really believe that we have the courage, we have the insight, we have the intelligence, we have the tenacity to be able to understand this phenomenon in a much better way than we do today. And my hope is that we'll continue to strive to work through ignorance, we'll continue to strive to push the boundaries of our own feelings uh, and, and knowledge in this area so that um, we can create a much more productive environment to expand our knowledge and our understanding and our relationship with these beings and hopefully integrate ourselves into the greater uh, universe. Um, you know, I said this earlier, like I am curiously agnostic and, and that I, this is what you've just said is how I want it to play out. I very much, that's, that's how I hope <laughs> it's actually, I don't, I don't really know, like deep down in my heart, I can't say with the same conviction like that you can, but um, you know, I sure want it to play out like this. So um, yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Mike. Anytime and uh, uh, best of luck in the radio program. And again, I think it's a, it's a wonderful endeavor. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Okay. Okay, then. Well, take care. Radio. Bye now. Okay. All right. Bye-bye, Mike. Hi, this is Mike. I'm chiming in at the end after the editing process. Um, I was very impressed. Uh, like all Canadians, it seems, Jim is a very nice guy. Uh, we talked for a little while at, after uh, the microphones were shut down. And, uh, yeah, really sweet guy. Uh, super supportive of, of me and my experiences. And and um, I'm left impressed. Uh, I'm going to uh, play a short excerpt from Jim's book. Uh, it's an audio file. Uh, now, now, this is not Jim's voice. Uh, this is a narrator reading Jim's text. But uh, it'll give you an idea of the flavor of the book. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now. band squeezing my head. I remembered the probe touching me behind the ear. I remembered waking up in the car. What had happened in between? Not knowing that answer was like watching a movie with a major scene missing, except that the movie was my life, and not knowing what was in that missing scene was intolerable. I considered hypnosis. For a contactee, undergoing hypnosis is like opening up Pandora's box. You have absolutely no idea what's in there, and some of it could be very, very frightening. Why open the box at all? Do you really need bigger issues to deal with than you already have? 
to know or not to know? I obsessed over that question for every waking second of every day for the two months it ultimately took me to decide to undergo hypnosis. Part of me had to know. Another part of me was terrified beyond reason. Finally, I decided to do it, because it was becoming increasingly clear that I could never live with the agitation and uncertainty if I didn't. Also, it's in my nature to be curious. Maybe the ultimate reason was that I simply had to find out. The answers were staggering. All is revealed. After unlocking the car door to signal the aliens that I was willing to meet them, I felt myself moving forward and upward, out of the car seat. The movement was accompanied by an excruciating pain, as if every fiber in my body were being torn apart. For a moment it felt as if I were being ripped to pieces. The searing pain was agonizing. If I'd been able to open my mouth to scream, I would have. Then, just as abruptly as it started, the pain stopped, and I was standing beside my car, inside a fifty-foot diameter, circular, amphitheater type of room with tiered steps. Each step in the tier was about five inches high and two feet deep which would be rather odd step-spacing for humans. On the steps stood six stoic, identical-looking beings, all dressed in a kind of uniform. They had the typical large heads that many contactees have described, and stood about four and a half feet tall. The atmosphere was filled with tension as they all intently stared at me. I promptly started yelling at them. In retrospect, the stupidity of my response astounds me. The searing pain may have disappeared, but the lingering fear that I had been about to die was still present. They had floated me out through the front of the car, right through the dashboard, and I assumed that this passage through solid material was the cause of the pain. Later, when they floated me out through some other solid objects, I found out that it wasn't. But I didn't know that at the time, and the residual impact of the pain was still very fresh, so even though I was scared... I wanted to take control of the situation to prevent another callous act on their part. So I started screaming at them, and swearing. So here's Jim, who was committed to not doing anything that might endanger his life, and who had intended to be a top-notch ambassador for the human race, screaming things like, You could have used the fucking door. I unlocked the fucking thing for you. I did all this shit so I can talk to you guys and you fucking hurt me. What do you think you're doing? Upon which, one of the beings stepped forward and asked, What do you need doors for? What did we need doors for? My surprise at hearing the response spoken in perfect English was lost in the jaw-dropping strangeness of the moment. What did we need doors for? Oh, God, how was I going to communicate with these little bastards if the cultural gap was so huge that we didn't even have doors in common? I was getting angry again when another one of the beings stepped forward, and suddenly, in that next instant, I was completely calm. It was obvious that they had the ability to exert direct influence on my emotional state. I asked them if the alien being who had contacted me during my meditation was also on the ship. I can't remember her name now, but at the time I did, saying, Is Althenia here? There was a split second of hesitation, a quick glance at each other, and all six of them burst out laughing. 
The oppressive tension of the moment was suddenly broken by my inability to pronounce her name. I wonder what they thought was so funny. They were literally in stitches and barely able to contain themselves. Apparently I had mangled her name quite hopelessly, and that's why they were laughing. Imagine, if you will, one emotionally tattered human being facing six small, decidedly non-human beings, all of whom are laughing hysterically. So much, I thought, for intergalactic relations. I assumed they were laughing at my stupidity. Without thinking, I said, Okay, go ahead and laugh at me. I'm just the stupid human. And one of them, still struggling for composure, said, No, no, it's not you. Her name is... I still can't recall her actual name. As it turned out, she was on the ship somewhere. When she contacted me through the meditation, she must have already been planning this physical contact. I now suspect that she gave them a stern briefing on how she contacted me, how important it was, what they needed to do, how to do it, what not to do, when to do it, and so on. Obviously it seemed funny that she didn't manage to provide me with her name in a way I could remember. Two of the beings told me to come with them. With one walking in front and one behind, I was escorted to what appeared to be a shower facility. Inside the chamber, but fully clothed, I was subjected to a blast of light combined with something else that I couldn't identify. I was relieved that I didn't have to remove my clothes, but it was certainly uncomfortable, and I assumed it was some kind of decontamination chamber. Next, we walked down a hallway. I noticed a certain automatic compliance in my own reactions, as if I were no longer in complete conscious control of myself. They gave me suggestions, and I followed them. It seemed perfectly natural to do what I was told. At no time while I was in the craft did I have any sense of it being in motion, although I suspect that it was. It's also notable that all the beings who spoke to me demonstrated a flawless command of the English language, although most used very short phrases. I don't recall them speaking any words or initiating any verbal or auditory communication between themselves. Inside the Ship As we walked, I did have the presence of mind to make some mental notes about what I was seeing. The hallways were about seven feet wide, with the walls curved so they were slightly wider in the middle than at the top and bottom. Three people could easily have walked abreast in them. The halls had narrow support archways, spaced about every ten feet. The lighting in the hallway was indirect, but bright. The light source was in the floor, but I couldn't see the actual source, just a glow of light similar to a track lighting system. The ceiling was about eight feet high, although I soon found out that it was higher in other areas of the structure. We crossed an intersecting hallway. Notably, the intersection was a perfect 90-degree angle. The hallway we crossed was about 35 feet long, with only one door opening off it. The hallway appeared to connect to another hallway running parallel to the one I was walking on. The cumulative suggestion of these details was that there was one large compartment in the intervening space. There were no windows, so I couldn't determine my location in the structure or the relative size of the vessel. It felt like a very large craft. 
I now think that I may have been picked up by a smaller craft and taken to this larger one. Many of the design concepts seem to reflect human architecture. The general air temperature, about 22 degrees Celsius, and air quality were completely consistent with a large, well-ventilated earth building. However, there was no sense of air movement, no unusual odors, and no visible indication of a heating, ventilation, or air conditioning system. As far as I could tell, the gravitational field strength was normal. I looked at the small being walking ahead of me. How likely would it be to find an alien species that would prefer the exact same environment that humans thrived in? I compared the diminutive size of all the beings I'd seen with the human-sized dimensions of the ship. The implications were staggering. The ship must have been constructed for the purpose of dealing with human beings. It was very unlikely that I was the first person to be here, I thought. The colossal commitment to resources, design, and function was astonishing. What in the world are they doing with us? As I walked, I had time to study the head of the being walking ahead of me. It was large, bald, bilobed, and I could distinctly see large arteries or veins pulsating beneath the thin skin. I didn't count the pulse rate, but there must have been a huge blood flow to the brain to create that kind of visible pulsing. The neck seemed far too small to effectively support the head, suggesting either a completely different internal structure from humans or some sort of localized independence from the Earth's gravitational field. In spite of their small necks and relatively large head-to-body size ratio, they moved with utter ease. Without warning, I had the most disturbing, overwhelming urge to bite into the head in front of me and eat it like an apple. It was a powerful impulse, as if I really needed to taste that head. A metaphor from my subconscious, telling me to fully taste this experience? Who knows? Maybe it was just the guy behind me playing a joke on his buddy in front. Whatever it was, the unsettling desire was exceptionally strong, and took a concerted effort on my part to control it. It was something totally outside of my normal modes of thought. We reached a room with two more beings in white outfits, and I was put into what seemed like a holding area. As I began to feel more aware of my surroundings, I started to panic. The stress was beyond belief. I began crying uncontrollably. I was about to ask them for help to calm me down when one of the beings said something like, Whoops, sorry, and suddenly I was calm. No drugs were involved. It's just some sort of conscious connection by which they can influence your mental state and calm you down. Next, I went through a series of painful medical procedures, some so painful that I couldn't stop myself from screaming in agony. After the first procedure, I remember asking the beings if there was anything I could do to help them. The question utterly confounded them. They were completely astonished that I might ask such a question after experiencing the procedure. As they moved to help me out of the room, they seemed so dumbstruck I could have knocked them over with a feather. Uh, that was a short audio excerpt from the book The Extraterrestrial Answer Book. And the author is Jim Maroney, and the publisher is Hampton Roads Publishing, and this book was published in December of 2009. Uh, I got this audio recording 
through audible.com.